Well, if you would turn to Second Peter, near the back of the New Testament, while you're doing that, I have some shoeboxes. So you know what time of year it is. Yes, already. So you have a couple weeks to fill these up. There are shoeboxes in the um, lobby that you can pick up, and uh, there are flyers on how to pack your shoebox, and uh, bring it back. You can bring it back the 13th or the 20th, I think, and um, then we will pray for the whole bunch. So you want to get your shoebox. Operation Christmas Child is upon us already. So encourage you to do that. If you have any questions whatsoever, um, Ask Paula. She's back over there, um, and she runs this for us every year and does a great job. And uh, you don't want to ask me, because I'm just going to tell you to ask Paula. So, anyways, hopefully by now you've gotten to Second Peter. And uh, we are moved from, uh, for, ended First Peter last week. We're beginning Second Peter uh, today. And I know it says verses 1 through 21, but we're only going to go 1 through 15 um, today because uh, I cut them off and I'm going to do them next week. <laughs> so I got through verse 15 and said I have the whole sermon. I just need to stop. Um, and that way you don't have to be here for an extra hour. So you're welcome. Anyways, if you would turn to Second Peter chapter 1. And as always, listen carefully uh, as this is God's word. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. 
I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us another time to the book of 2 Peter, the first time to the book of 2 Peter, to learn about Christ, how he wants us to live. Lord, teach us by your Holy Spirit and help us to make every effort to understand your truth and to live by what we know. These are words about knowing and working and remembering, and we need them more than ever. So open our ears to hear them and our minds to understand them and our hearts to believe them and then enable us to walk in them. As always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning. Help us to consider what it means to embrace diligence as it is commanded in your word. And so we pray, speak through the words of the Apostle Peter this morning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. I really like the title of this introduction, the Department of Redundancy Department. I can identify with that. And and that's because, well, I am one of the most easily frustrated people I know. However, it is evidence of God's grace that the Holy Spirit is making me more into Christ's image when others comment on how patient I am. This is, after all, the fruit of having God's Spirit, but to be honest, I always feel a little weird when I'm complimented on something where I know I fall short probably also evidence that I'm really good at faking it in public. One area where frustration shows up is when someone asks me the same question twice, or even worse. If someone I'm ministering to continues to commit the same sin over and over again. More than once I've told someone, I've got nothing else for you. I told you this the first time we talked, the second time we talked, and the third time we talked, and here we are again, and I have nothing new to offer. And more often than not, the real issue isn't their ability to obey or to live uh, righteously, um, but to remember the gospel. They simply forget why they should obey, why they should live righteously. They simply forget Jesus. They forget who he is and what he's done and what he's promised them. And my sinful pride wants to say, hey, we've gone over this. Don't you remember what Jesus has done? Isn't that enough? Now, I recognize my own hypocrisy as I'm willing to repeatedly show myself grace, but fail to heed Christ's command to forgive Uh, my brother 77 times. And God has been kind to grow me in this area and show me that the deepest truths about God himself, about the gospel, about his word, about our sin, are worth repeating. 
Take Peter's words here in our text, verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Note that Peter's audience already knew what he intended to tell them. But he reminds them anyway. Good pastors do that. So do good parents and good teachers and good counselors. If you expect to be effective in your ministry, then so should you. After all, God frequently reminds us of who he is, what he's done, and the promises he's made throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. And he tells his people to do the same, and to do so often. And we saw that several times when we went through Deuteronomy and Joshua, as I'm sure you remember. Just like a loving father patiently reminds his children of the importance of looking both ways before crossing the street. Just like a good teacher continually reminds her students to show their work on the math test. Just like a good counselor reminds his counselee that he's not defined by his past sin, but by his new identity in Christ. Repetition of God's word glorifies him and does us good. But we constantly forget what we have and what we are in Christ. We're like mild-mannered versions of Jason Bourne. We forget our identity like Jason Bourne, and so we should be relentless until we know it again. And for those who haven't seen the movies Uh, Jason Bourne is one of the great action heroes of our day. He's a highly trained secret agent, to understate it, who's capable of winning a fight with nothing more than a rolled-up magazine and a Bic pen. He is armed with unrivaled skill and know-how for every situation. But in the very first Bourne film, he wakes up from a failed mission not remembering who he is. Now, he quickly realizes what he's capable of doing, but he is determined to find out who he is. He doesn't seem to care that he can do things that James Bond only dreams about. He wants to know who he is. And herein lies the parable for the Christian life. We are often more drawn to what we can do for Jesus than who we are in Jesus. The Apostle Peter wants to correct that. Peter's second letter uh, here is written around A.D. 66, three, four years after his first letter, and about a year before his execution. It's short but powerful. Second Peter serves as his last written words to the church. You could say as its last will and testament uh, and uh, of his uh, teaching. And sometime before A.D. 68, we don't know exactly, um, the churches scattered throughout the five provinces in Asia Minor have now received their second letter from the apostle. And unlike the first letter, it pointed to Christ as the source of hope in hurtful times, Peter wrote his second letter, as we would say today, to rattle some cages. He knows his time on earth is nearly up, And instead of leaving the fading echoes of preaching that would be soon forgotten, 
Peter wants to leave this unfailing written record of his teaching. Understandably, he picks his battles wisely. He doesn't have time for the non-essentials. So in this letter, he addresses essential truths that would matter not only to his original readers, but also to us. And so the teaching of Second Peter is a call to godliness. It is a call from the Apostle Peter to remember the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he is writing it as he faces his own death. For Peter, remembering the truth in which we have been established is vital if the concerns of this letter are going to be realized in our lives. On the one hand, he wants us to remember the truth so that we can grow in godliness. Remembering the truth is vital if we are to have any spiritual maturity as Christians. And on the other hand, he wants us to remember the truth so we can avoid falling because we were misled by false teaching. So remembering the truth both grows us and defends and protects us against error. And the letter of Second Peter is this overall exhortation to godliness. In these verses, we see the power for godliness. And that starts uh, in verses 1 through 4 with what he gives us. Looking there, Simeon, just another way of saying Simon, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. These are remarkable statements. And the amazing thing is he is making these statements to us. He is speaking to Christians who have believed the promises of the gospel. And it says, through them, we partake of the divine nature. That is an astounding way to put it. At conversion, we get the Holy Spirit, yes. But this is a whole unique, different way of putting it. He says, we partake of the divine nature. What does that mean? It has been widely misinterpreted over the years. So I'm going to give it my best shot. When you were conceived, the DNA of your ancestors was implanted into you. And after you're born, that DNA essentially plays itself out in the rest of your life, making you what you are. And when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not just some nebulous force. It's the third person of the Trinity, and this is how God enters your life. And therefore, when you believe, the very DNA of God is implanted in you through the Holy Spirit, and the rest of your life is an outworking of that DNA, which makes you the person uh, that you will become. And we're being told that the very DNA of God is implanted in you when you believed in Christ. And that's the reason that Peter can say this most convicting and yet most 
hopeful verse. There's verses 3 and 4. I'm just going to read them separately. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. What is the convicting part of that? Well, there's no excuses. Peter is saying, don't tell me you don't have what you need to live as you should. You absolutely do. You have the divine nature. What more do you want? You have what you need. If you're a Christian who believes and has received the Holy Spirit, then you partake of the divine nature. And the incredibly convicting part, actually a devastating part, Peter says, you have been granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have already been given everything that you need to live exactly as you know you should. I don't like not having excuses. I don't know about you, but this idea that he's given us what we need for godliness um, it sort of takes our legs out from under us. We don't have any, uh, any excuses anymore for not living a godly life. Now, the hopeful aspect of all of that, so there's the convicting side, but the hopeful side is there is no wound so deep in your life that it can't be healed, that you can't be healed. There is no brokenness so great that you can't be healed. There is no habit so binding that you can't be freed from it. However, you knew that was coming, right? However, the Holy Spirit's work is not a magic bullet. It is not a quick fix. It is a deep fix. It takes time. Growth in godliness is gradual. Back to verse 3. We like the granted to us all things part. But then we read, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And then down in verse 8, it talks about uh, not being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when the Bible talks about knowing God or knowing Christ, it's not just talking about information. It's not just talking about knowing about God or uh, you're going to know about Jesus or you're going to uh, get some more Bible knowledge or something like that. What it's talking about is knowing someone personally. You have no relationship with someone unless you're spending time with them. That's relational. That's a simple fact. Therefore, the first price that you have to pay for growth and godliness, and it's a costly price, is you have to win the battle to spend time with God. Or you don't really have a relationship with him. You don't know him. You can say you know him. You can say you believe in him. And we all do that. I mean, I have people in my life that I used to know. If you ask me, do you know that person? I'd say, yeah, I know that person. But if I haven't talked to him in 20 years, and when you get to be my age, there are a lot of people I used to know that I haven't talked to in 20 years. Then I don't really know them anymore. Not really. And if we're going to move from knowing about Jesus to knowing Jesus, we have to pay the price 
of spending time with Jesus. There is no shortcut. Now, last night I watched the news. I watched NBC News on Saturday night. And uh, mostly for one reason, I don't really care that much about the news. But the Saturday night news anchor is Jose diaz Balart. He's also on MSNBC and Telemundo. And he ends every broadcast with a trademark sign-off. He comes to the end of the news and he says, Thank you for the privilege of your time. I love that. You don't know God, not really, unless you're paying the price of the privilege of your time. And that's time with him. If you think about it, when you read your Bible, you're hearing from him. When you adore and confess and examine yourself and thank God and petition and lay your needs in front of him, that's prayer. You're speaking to him. When you're hearing him in his word, he's speaking to you. When you're praying, you're speaking to him. He speaks and you listen, then you speak and he listens. That's the way it works. But you have to pay the price of the privilege of your time. And why do we do that? Why do we give God the privilege of our time? Well, one, he's God, and he asks for it, and yes, that should be enough. But look with me at verse 4. He has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There is a link between what God commands and what God promises, and it is a crucial link. If you lose sight of it, the commands of God can crush you. But here's a wonder of the Christian life. For every obligation of Scripture, there is a promise of Scripture. For all the duties of God's law that rest on us, there is a promise of grace to empower us. The root out of the pit of worldly corruption into which we're all sunk by nature. The root out of that pit and up the mountain of Christ-like holiness is a root traveled by dependence on the promised help of God. And so he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God gives us the power for what he commands. Now that's his part. Obviously we have a part here too. And that's what he asks us. Verses 5 through 11. What he gives us, what he asks us. Verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So here, first of all, is a call to godliness. Look at verse 5 again. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and so on. If you go down to verse 10, it says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Peter does not have a passive model of Christian growth for us. He wants us to make every effort to be all the more diligent in the pursuit of godliness. There is no growth that is not worked at in the Christian life. It does not come by osmosis. It comes by diligent effort. And second, notice the character of godliness. Grace propels you, so you're making every effort to grow. And what should that look like? Well, his virtue list there is bracketed by two key words. And the first word is supplement. You see that in verse 5. He says, supplement your faith. Now, when I read that, I think a supplement, you add to something. You get this thing, you supplement it, you add something else to it. But I went and looked it up. And dictionary.com says supplement means adding to something in order to complete it. You're not just adding to it. You're adding to it in order to complete it. And so Peter says, for this reason that we may become partakers of the divine nature, we're to make every effort to supplement our faith, to add to it in order to complete it. And we do that by adding three sets of character qualities. First, there's the upward set, faith, virtue, and knowledge. And we'll do these quickly. Faith in Christ, knowledge of Christ, and virtue. What does Peter mean by that? Well, he uses the same word back in verse 3 to describe Jesus, but there it's translated as excellence. And it uses a different word because it's a different tense in the Greek. It's a long explanation. Just take my word for it. Anyway, Peter is saying, I want you to be like Christ. I want his excellence, his virtue to be mirrored in your life. So these qualities, faith, virtue, and knowledge, we might say are upward or Godward in their orientation. We're to trust in Christ, become like Christ, and study to know Christ. Now, is that a description of your life? Is that what you aspire to? To trust Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to know Jesus better. Now, to the upward qualities, Peter adds three more, and they're largely inward in orientation this time. You see them in verse 6. We're told to add self-control, steadfastness, and godliness. Again, I'm not going to go into any detail here. They all pertain to personal holiness. And then we get the outward qualities, verse 7, brotherly affection and love. The first focuses on how we're to treat and respond to one another within the fellowship of the local church with affection towards our brothers and sisters. And then the second is broader and more general and how we're to love and care for all people. Godliness always moves in those three directions. Upward, wants to know Christ and be like him. Inward, it wants to change and put sin to death, control self, press on no matter what. And outward, it cares about serving others not just checking off boxes on a list of duties. Now, the first word is supplement, to add these qualities, to add to your faith, to complete it. 
Then at the end, you say, if you have these qualities, verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, that's the second key word, then they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter does not want us to plateau in the pursuit of godliness. There's no room to say, good enough, faithful enough, I go to church enough, I know enough, I love Jesus enough. No one ever says to themselves in secret, I love Jesus enough. You know, that's enough obedience for one day. Jesus has gotten enough of my time. I've got to leave a little room in my heart, after all, for my approval idol and my pleasure idol and my college football idol and my work idol and my family idol. They all get a piece of me, too. We don't say that, but we act that way. You know, another very simple way to make Peter's point that these character qualities should be ours and should be increasing would simply be to say, you shall have no other gods before me. And that's why Peter ends the section with a call to diligence. Verses 9 and 10. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. To lack godliness is like being so nearsighted that you are effectively blind. I actually know something about being nearsighted, so you're effectively blind. But here he says it means that you have forgotten that you are cleansed from your former sins. Here's the point. Some of us are inclined to use the gospel to sort of solve our guilty conscience, but without any real intention of change. I mean, we look at the wrong stuff, we drink too much, we lie, we deceive, we fly off the handle at the slightest provocation, and then shame and guilt begin to wash over us as sin pricks our conscience. And so what do we do? Well, we may run to the cross. What a relief, after all, to know that Christ has shed his blood for the forgiveness of my sins. Praise God, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Praise the Lord for gospel truth. But Peter says we have forgotten that the same cross that pays the penalty for my sin, the same blood that cleansed me from my sin, has also purchased the holiness and the godliness that I'm called to live out every day. So there's God's part, and there's our part. But Peter says, to be honest, we are prone to forget our part. And that's why he reminds us, verses 12 through 15. Verses 12 through 15. Now, I have a theory. As you get older, you amass such a great amount of information, it becomes more difficult to sort through all the information to find what you're looking for. As a result, there's times when you don't seem to be quite as quick in recalling a name or an event or something you used to know. So the common experience of my age is... You know something, and it just doesn't come to mind. And you sort of have to wait a few minutes, and then it shows up. We talk about having senior moments and things like that. The older we get, 
the more we know about forgetting. And this morning, Peter takes time to remind these believers of essential truths of the faith that they must not forget. Listen again to his words. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. And then he he ends with, I will make every effort so after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. It is a sad reality of life that we often forget what we need to remember and remember what we would like to forget. Think about some wonderful time in your life, a beautiful view, a special day, wedding, birth of a child, joy of some celebration, and fairly quickly you forget the people involved, the things that were said, many of the details. You know, and of course it's those events that say, this is something I will never forget, and then I do. We don't, somehow we don't take the time to really fix the event in our memory. On the other hand, think of some of the regrets of your life. I can vividly recall hurtful things I've said, stupid things I've done, painful failures. You can remember foolish words and hurt looks. When someone we love dies slowly, We can vividly remember the last few years of sickness, but the many years of vibrant life are tough to recall. We have to work at it. Peter understands human nature. He knows how important it is to rehearse the truths of the faith in our mind. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. And then in verse 15, he says, I'm going to make every effort Uh, so that you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter reiterates his intention to remind them of these qualities, the qualities he listed there, the virtues of godliness. His concern is that false teachers are going to creep into the church and promising freedom, and they're going to end up leading people into sensuality and spiritual bondage. And we're going to look at that in more detail next week when we study chapter 2. So the exhortation, therefore, is to ignore these false teachers and pursue godliness. And one of the chief reasons for doing that is the future coming of Christ. When the day of the Lord arrives, the world will be destroyed, our works exposed, the ungodly judge. That's chapter 3 in two weeks. So for Peter, the second coming of Christ serves as a profound motivation for turning aside from sin making every effort to live a godly life. That's his argument. But the false teachers that are going to show up and have already showed up in the church doubt that the Lord's going to come again in some cataclysmic uh, way. They don't believe in a day of judgment. So Peter aims to convince the faithful that contrary to the false teachers, Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And this return will be a sight to behold. Now, to substantiate this claim, and we'll deal with this next week, but very quickly, he gives two pieces of evidence, eyewitness testimony, verses 16 to 18, and authoritative documents, verses 19 to 21. All that is another sermon by itself, but I'm going to add it to next week because we're almost out of time.
So the primary way that we are to encourage, counsel, and exhort one another is through reminding one another of the gospel. Of course, there's times when Christians, especially new Christians, have to be taught truths they didn't previously know. But most of the time, what we need to hear is the old, old story of Jesus and his love. That's what preachers have to offer in their preaching, counselors in their counseling, and friends in their encouraging. And this is what Christ offers in the Lord's Supper. You think about it, we need reminders. Throughout the Bible, God gives his people reminders. Sometimes those reminders uh, take the form of physical memorials. If you remember last year, from or uh, beginning of the year from Joshua, when God parted the Jordan River so his people could enter the promised land, he told them to take 12 stones from the river to create a sign among you, a memorial forever, Joshua 4. God is big into remembering. It's actually a very common word in the Bible. And we see it in Peter's own life. Peter knows this. Peter was the guy who denied Jesus three times. He's later restored and he's asked three times whether he loves Jesus. Peter experienced firsthand the loving and patient repetition of Jesus' teaching. And so Peter has learned the importance of repetition. As flawed people, we don't always reflect this patient willingness to repeat ourselves. At times I've gotten frustrated when I've had to remind people of something they already know. At times I've been shocked when I see another uh, godly Christian who needs reminding. Now that's easily corrected when we look at the person of Christ. He's the best teacher the world has ever known. Yet he found the need to repeat himself. And he did it lovingly and patiently and often. Likewise, the Lord's Supper is a regular reminder of all that God has done for us in Christ. Communion is more than a memorial. Remembering is not the only thing that is happening here. And in fact, the call to remember is not even found in Matthew and Mark's accounts of the Last Supper. Nevertheless, communion is certainly not less than a memorial. Remembering is the central element in the Lord's Supper. After all, Jesus said, Luke 22, do this in remembrance of me. Perhaps it should have been enough for God simply to tell us what he had done. Perhaps it should have been enough uh, for us simply to exhort one another to remember God's grace. But God in his kindness, knowing how frail we are, knowing how battered by life we can be, gives us physical reminders of his grace in the bread and in the cup. Communion is not simply an act through which we recall the death of Christ. The act of remembering is supposed to change those involved. It leads us back to our identity in Christ by reminding us of who he is and what he has done. It allows the past to shape the present. It enrolls us in the story. The Lord's Supper connects us with the Lord Jesus. It connects us with each other in a very visible profession of faith. It connects past and present when we hear the words of Jesus, do this in remembrance of me. 
The new covenant Passover meal that we call the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of the once for all new covenant sacrifice that Jesus made for us. When we partake of this meal, we not only remember who Jesus is, we not only remember what he has done, but we hear God the Father say, because my son has shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins, I will remember your sins no more. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess our failure to remember the grace of the gospel. Sometimes we act as people who think we have nothing to remember. And yet you promise to grant to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Grant that we may live as people who remember your grace, who remember your word, who remember your sacrifice, and work in each of our hearts as we learn from the Apostle Peter to embrace our status as exiles, as strangers in a strange land, as those who have been provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit, draw us ever closer to the one who has forgiven our sin at the cross and who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.